You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We thank you that you give us the grace when we ask to trust him even more. We have proved him o'er and o'er because he is the faithful, ever-loving, ever-present Savior. We are grateful for his work for us and for salvation. And we come now to your word and we pray that you would give to us the grace of sanctification, that your word would purge us and cleanse us, that your word would edify us, encourage us, and instruct us in the truth that we might live in obedience to you, all to your precious, glorious grace. We ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is hard to believe that it has been six weeks since we were in the book of Acts. We did the five weeks of the the series for Christmas and then one week on communion last week. And I don't know about you, to me it has felt like it's been far more than six weeks. It's felt like we've been out of Acts for six months. And I actually, this last week, meeting on Tuesday morning, I had to go back and reread the last three sermons that I did in the book of Acts, and as I was reading through it, I was surprised at how much I had forgotten. And then it occurred to me, if I've forgotten that much, and I study it and prepare it and memorize most of it and then come up here and present it to you, if I've forgotten that much, then you have probably forgotten almost as much as I've forgotten, maybe not quite as much. So what we need to do this morning is I want to give sort of a, a review, if you will, of everything that took us up to where we left Paul. When we last Left off with the Apostle Paul, we were in the book of Acts, chapter 26. For those of you who maybe had forgotten even where we were at in the book of Acts, if I had maybe taken a poll, some of you said 21, maybe 28, hopefully we were in 28. No, we were all the way back in chapter 26. And we had actually left off right in the middle of a speech that Paul was given, giving to King Agrippa. And I almost feel bad for cutting Paul off in the middle of his speech because it sort of aborts for us any kind of a flow that we had, but we need to go back now to Acts chapter 26 and sort of catch the flow. Acts chapter 26 is the the climax, the zenith, the, the peak of the whole book of Acts. Everything after Acts 26 basically chronicles how it is that Paul got to the city of Rome. It's sort of winding down after 26. Chapter 26 is Paul's longest of his five defensive speeches that he gives. He gives five of them. This is the fifth one. It is the longest one. It is the most biographical speech that Paul gives. It is the most theological speech that Paul gives. It is the longest one. It is the most intricate one. And what sets it apart from any of the other speeches is not only the person giving it, that is Paul, who was an expert in all things Jewish, but the person who was listening to this speech, which was Agrippa, who was a king who was also an expert in all things Jewish. So it is one intellectual to another, one expert to another, one practicing Jew to another practicing Jew. It is one scholar to another talking about the things of the Jewish faith. That is why it is so theological and so intricate. You remember that the Apostle Paul was arrested back in chapter 21. That's where I started reading again this last week. And I read 21 all the way through the end of 26 to sort of bring myself back up to speed. The Apostle Paul was arrested in chapter 21. There were three charges that were brought against him. Remember what they were? Sedition, sectarianism, and sacrilege. Then the Apostle Paul was shipped off from Jerusalem by Lysias, and he went to Felix, where he stood trial before Felix. 
And you remember Felix kept him in prison for two years and then he was succeeded by Porcius Festus and then Festus got Paul out of prison. He had another trial before Festus. And during that two-year period of time between Felix and Festus, it became obvious to everyone, to Felix, to Festus, to the Jews, to any casual observer, that those accusations that the Jews raised against Paul of sedition, sectarianism, and sacrilege were bogus. And by the time we get to Acts 26, it is obvious to everybody that the key issue is Paul's view of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul has kept that right center stage, right on the front burner the whole time. Because every time he speaks, he brings up the resurrection. And he always boils it down to that and says, if I am on trial for anything, it is because I believe that God has raised Jesus from the dead. That is why the Jews hate me. Felix knew that. Festus knew that. Agrippa is about to find that out. Every casual observer knew that. The Jews knew that. All of the other accusations have fallen by the wayside. So Festus brings Paul up. The Jews come down to Caesarea to have this trial before Festus. And as the Jews begin to raise their accusations, Paul denies them. He says none of them are true. And then Festus hatches this brilliant plan. Would you, Paul, be willing to go up to Jerusalem to stand trial for these charges? Now, Paul knows what's going to happen. They're putting together a plot to assassinate him on the way. He knows that once he gets to Jerusalem, he's as good as dead. And so Paul does the only thing that he can do, knowing that he's being thrown under the bus for political expediency's sake, because Festus wants to do the Jews a favor, Paul appeals to Caesar. Now, it's out of Festus's hands. It's out of Agrippa's hands. It's out of everybody's hands. Festus now has to send Paul off to Rome to stand trial. But here's Festus's problem. Do you remember what Festus's problem was? He had to send a letter with Paul to Rome explaining to Nero what the charges were against Paul. Why is that a problem? What are the charges against Paul? It has to do with this dead man, Jesus, who Paul asserts to be alive. That's the key issue. So now if Festus sends Paul off to Rome with his letter without any real formal legal Roman accusation against the man, nothing deserving death, nothing deserving punishment, nothing deserving of imprisonment, just a disagreement between Paul as a Pharisee and these other Pharisees about the issue of whether God raised Jesus from the dead or not, Nero's going to think Festus is incredibly incompetent. Couldn't you have dealt with this in your own province? So Festus now has a dilemma. It's of his own making. So what does he do? He needs to write a letter. He doesn't know what to put in the letter. And then he is given the opportunity of a lifetime when Agrippa shows up. Because Agrippa is an expert in all things Jewish. If anybody could give Festus a little heads up on what to write to Nero, it would be Agrippa. So while Agrippa is there, Festus takes the opportunity to sort of uh, wine him and dine him and, and visit with him. And he brings Paul's case up. And he reviews all of the details of Paul's case. That's the end of Acts chapter 25. And he gets to the end and Agrippa says, I've been wanting to hear this guy myself for quite some time. So Festus says, you'll have your opportunity tomorrow. So on the next day, they gather with Agrippa and Festus and all of the royal people there, all of the leaders in the city, this massive political capital. Hundreds of people are gathered in this in Herod's Praetorium, this massive auditorium, and they're all there, all decked up in their purple robes and all that. And Agrippa is there with his quote-unquote sister Bernice. You remember her? And they're all up there and honoring Rome and all of the glory of Rome. And in comes the Apostle Paul in chains. And Agrippa gives Paul the opportunity to speak. He says, you're permitted to speak for yourself. Now, it's not a formal trial. There were no accusers present. There's no accusations raised. All this is for Paul is an opportunity to make the case for the legitimacy of the Christian faith and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he is using his own personal testimony as Exhibit A He's seeking to convince Agrippa 
that Jesus Christ is who He said He is, did what we say that He did, and rose again from the grave, offering salvation in Him. That is what Paul is at. And as Paul stands before Agrippa, everybody else in the auditorium seems to just disappear from the narrative. And it's Paul talking to Agrippa, because it is Paul who wants to get Agrippa saved. And so he presents the gospel to Agrippa. And everybody else, all of the other heads of state, get to listen in on this presentation. So that takes us up to Acts chapter 26, verse 2. Paul says, In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jew, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, to have this opportunity to make a defense before you today because you are an expert in all customs and questions pertaining to the Jews. So Paul says, I'm glad to have this opportunity to present my case. Why? Because you are a, you're a whole lot better than Festus. Festus was out of his league in things Jewish. He wasn't a Jew, didn't know anything about Judaism, didn't know anything about Christianity. Agrippa, however, had been a long time in the area. He was a practicing Jew, an expert in all things Jewish. So Paul says, I'm glad I have my chance to present my case to an expert such as yourself. Verse 4, so then the Jews know of my manner of life. Now what Paul's going to do is he's going to give Agrippa sort of his biographical background. All the Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which was from the beginning spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they're willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused by the Jews. Then he asks this piercing question in verse 8. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God should raise the dead? Here's what Paul's saying. I was born in Tarsus. Shortly after my birth, my parents moved to Jerusalem. This is where I was raised. This is where I grew up. This is where I've spent my life. This is where I was educated. He was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. He was the strictest of the strictest sect of their religion. He was a Pharisee. He lived his Phariseeism. He was a moral man. He was a scholar. He was an intellect. He was well-educated. He was a rabbi. He was orthodox in his theology. He was as Jewish as Jews got. He had everything going for him. Everything. And he had absolutely nothing for him to convert from his Judaism or his Phariseeism to Christianity. And what Paul is wanting Agrippa to come to grips with is why would somebody who was so Jewish, so Pharisaical, so committed to the Old Testament law, why would they convert to Christianity? Why would you abandon all of that and turn all of that over and become a believer? That's what Paul wants Agrippa to to grasp. Well, now Paul's going to go a step further, and this brings us up to verses 9 and 11, because this is where we left at the end of verse 8. This is where Paul explains his career as a persecutor of the church. Look at verse 9. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. So Agrippa is going to be asking, what is it after being a Pharisee, being a Jew, being Orthodox, being all of that that would cause you to convert to Christianity? Well, Paul's going to add something else onto that. What is it after pursuing the church and hating Christians and being so hostile to Christ? What is it that would cause you to convert to Christianity? So today we're just going to look at Paul's career as a persecutor of the church from verses 9 to 11. And as Paul describes his activities of persecution, I want you to notice three things. First of all, he describes his motives. 
Second, he describes his methods. And then third, he describes his madness. His motives, his methods, and his madness. Look at verse 9, his motives. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Now what I want you to notice is that comes right after verse 8. See what's in verse 8? Paul asks the question, why should it be seemed impossible, incredible to you people, if God should raise the dead? And I think he is addressing Jews in that audience who scoffed at the idea of a resurrection. And I think he is addressing those Gentiles in the audience who would have scoffed at the idea of a resurrection. With all of those people standing around, Paul says, why should it be considered incredible among you people if God should raise the dead? If there is a God, and if He has promised to raise the dead, then He certainly can raise the dead. Why then do you scoff at the idea that He actually would raise one particular person from the dead, that is, Jesus of Nazareth? Hard for Him to understand why they would scoff at that? Not at all. Verse 9, I myself also thought I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus. Paul puts himself in the position of those who at one time are persecuting him, saying there was one time when I persecuted people. See, there was one time when Paul shared the Pharisees' mindset. Here's what the Pharisees believed. The Pharisees believed that God was going to send a literal Messiah, that that Messiah would deal with the sin issue, that the Messiah would resurrect the saints, and that the Messiah would establish a kingdom, and that the saints would get to enjoy the blessings of that kingdom. All the Pharisees believed that. That's what God had promised in the Old Testament. They took God's word at face value and said, that's what we believe. And there was a time when Paul agreed with all of that. He said, I agree with all of that. I share all of those perspectives. But here's what separates me from the other Pharisees. I actually believe that God did raise one individual, one particular person from the dead. So why should it be considered incredible amongst the Pharisees that I would preach Jesus Christ as risen from the dead? Why should that be incredible? That's a good question. Well, Paul says, there was a time when I thought the same way that they thought. There was a time when I thought that I had to do hostile things to the name of Christ. There was a time when I thought I had to pursue Christians. And I had to oppose Christ and oppose Christianity. And you know what drove him to that? It was the same spiritual blindness that he now saw in those who were persecuting him. I want you to turn to the end of the book of Acts, chapter 28. And I want you to look at a verse there. This is Paul in Rome, and he's speaking to Jews who are in Rome, and they've been coming to his residence, and they're talking with him, and he's reasoning with them from the Scriptures, trying to show that Jesus is the Christ. Look at verse 25. And when they did not agree with one another, began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word, and this is what he said, The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand, and you will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. That's spiritual blindness. The Pharisees had eyes to see but couldn't see, ears to hear but couldn't hear, hearts that were there but they couldn't understand, they wouldn't turn, they wouldn't embrace Christ. And Paul says, I shared that same spiritual blindness one time. Friends, do you ever look back at, on your own life and remember the pit from which you came? You ever do that? Sometimes we are Christians for so long, we begin to forget what it's like to think as an unbeliever. What it's like to reason as an unbeliever. What it's like to love sin and hate righteousness like an unbeliever. And then we get to be a Christian so long that we begin to think to ourselves, I can't understand why they don't trust Christ. I don't get what they don't see. I don't get what they don't like. I don't understand them. Paul never got to that point. He knew exactly what it was that motivated the people who wanted his life. 
He said, I was there one time. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. We ourselves also used to be disobedient, deceived, and foolish, and serving various lusts and pleasures, and living in malice and envy and hateful and hating one another. Paul says, that was us. You know what you never see in the book of Acts? You never see Paul saying this. Why do they hate me? I just don't get it. I don't get why they hate me. I don't get why they persecute me. I don't get why they want to stone me. Why do they want to kill me? I just don't get it. I don't understand it. I'm just, and you never see Paul whining about what he suffered. You know why he didn't whine? Because he understood exactly why it is they hated him. He had been there one time, and he remembered it. Just a couple weeks ago, we had our Christmas Eve evening service. And uh, this happens periodically in a, in a group where you'll be giving a message, and, and I notice this, and probably the people sitting out there don't notice this, but I notice this up here because I see all of your idiosyncrasies, and I know what all of you do, and whether you're awake or alert or all of that, I notice all of that. Nothing passes my, my, my scrutiny. And uh, the evening service was going on really well, and the message I thought was going on really well until I got to the point about calling people children of wrath and need of a salvation and need of a Savior and under God's judgment and going to hell if they don't repent and all that stuff. And the minute I start talking about that, there was two or three people that sort of folded their arms like this and slouched down in their seat and started tilting their head and rolling their eyes and all of that. And it would be easy for me to get down and say, why don't they get it? What don't they understand? Why do they have to be so hostile? I don't understand. No, friends, I certainly understand. I don't know about you, but I remember what it was like to be so greedy, so selfish, so hateful in my heart, so deceptive, so dishonest, so hateful of righteousness and such a lover of sin that I remember that from time to time. I understand what it's like to sit there and fold your arms and roll your eyes when you hear the gospel. I did it dozens of times. That's what Paul is saying. I once thought myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus. And do you notice in that admission, in that candid admission, what Paul is saying? He wasn't coerced into this. Who bears responsibility for it? Paul. He thought he had to do this. It wasn't Caiaphas and Annas who said, look, we need somebody and you're the man. You go from house to house persecuting Christians. It wasn't Caiaphas and Annas and it wasn't the rest of the Sanhedrin that said, we're going to make you do this. If you want to be one of us, you've got to do this. It wasn't any of them. He wasn't coerced. He wasn't influenced into it. Paul said, this is what I thought. I thought I had to stomp out Christians. And you know why he did it? Because in his mind, Christians were blasphemers. They were apostates. They were heretics and false teachers who had the audacity to worship a man, which is the worst of all idolatries, and to give to a man, namely Jesus, homage and honor and reverence and obedience that was due only to God. And so as he looked at the Christian church and all of these thousands of people who were becoming believers and getting baptized, he said, we have to stop this. And so we will kill them. And that's what he wanted to do. And that's what he set out to do. Because to Saul of Tarsus, the Christian church, was a cancer that was eating away at the vital organs of the nation of Israel. Their faith, their traditions, the law of Moses, the ancestors, the prophets, all of that. And it had to be stomped out. That was his motives. John chapter 16, Jesus said, there's coming a day when they're going to put you out of the synagogues and people are going to think that by killing you, they're doing God's service. If there was ever a description of the Apostle Paul from the mouth of the Lord Jesus, that was it. He thought he was doing God's service by killing Christians. Those were his motives. He wanted to stomp out Christianity. Well, look at his methods. Verse 10. And this is just what I did. In Jerusalem, not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, he went from house to house, Acts 8, verse 3 says, 
grabbing saints, both men and women. He didn't discriminate. He didn't say, well, you're the women. We're going to be nice on you. Men, women, anybody who named the name of Christ who was of jailable age, and he put them in prisons. And he ravaged the church, going from house to house. And any Christian, he put them in prison, just like Peter and John were in prison. Just like all of the apostles in Acts chapter 5 were in prison, and they were flogged. And he had the authority to do this because the chief priests, Annas and Caiaphas, the two men who murdered the Lord Jesus, gave to Saul of Tarsus permission to do that. So not only was he binding them up and and putting them in prison, but look at the end of verse 10. This, I think, is one of the most interesting phrases ever to come from Paul's lips. Look at this. But also, when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. Now, why do I say that's interesting? When they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. The word vote there is really the word, it's a word, it's the word pebble or stone. It's used one other time in the New Testament, it's translated stone. When they were being put to death, I cast my stone against them. Now, does that mean that Paul was stoning Christians? It's not a reference to the act of execution. Here's what it's a reference to. It is a reference to the ancient practice at, in councils or in trials, when it came time to vote on the guilt or an innocence of an individual, they would cast either a white stone or a black stone. And they would put out their white stone if they felt that the accused was innocent and should be released. They would put out the black stone if they were voting that the accused was guilty and should be punished or executed. So Paul says, when it came time to execute them, I cast my pebble. I put out my stone against them. A Christian would come before the council. And what is the charge against him? He's a believer or a follower of Jesus Christ and belongs to the way. Paul says, I pulled out my black stone, black stone. That's it. That's all the evidence I needed. And when it came time to vote on their guilt, I cast my black pebble against them. Now here's why this is so interesting. He's talking about his persecuting activities in the city of Jerusalem. There was only one body of men in all of the land of Israel, in the city of Jerusalem or anywhere else, that had the authority to bring men before them to judge them and to vote on their guilt or their innocence and to release them or to punish them. And what body of men do you think that was? The Sanhedrin. It's the only body of men that Paul could have belonged to in Jerusalem where he would cast his pebble either in favor of executing an individual or in favor of releasing an individual. So do I think that this indicates that the Apostle Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin? I most certainly do. Let me explain to you why. Let me give you a little biographical, a couple of Paul's biographical puzzle pieces. Listen to this. Jesus was executed, buried, resurrected, ascended, all in the spring of 33 A.D. The church was born the day of Pentecost, spring of 33 A.D. Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, was converted no later than 35 A.D. or 36 A.D. at the absolute latest. That's the latest date. That means all of his persecuting activity was done in the first two to three years of the church's existence. Well, here Paul talks about being in Jerusalem, persecuting the church, and being on a council where he had the opportunity to vote for or against an individual's condemnation. If Paul was raised in Jerusalem, schooled in Jerusalem, lived in Jerusalem for his young adult life, then that places him in Jerusalem at the time of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ and the day of Pentecost. Now, do you think that an Orthodox rabbi like Paul would be in Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost? Most certainly he would be. Do you think he would be there for the celebration of Pentecost, or Passover and Pentecost, both of those? He would have celebrated both of those in Jerusalem. 
So I often wonder to myself, and this is just some sanctified speculation, don't take this to the bank, but was the Apostle Paul in Jerusalem to see Jesus Christ ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and to hear the crowd shouting praises of Hosanna and praise to God to Him? Was he there to hear that? Did he see that or did he hear about it? Did he, was he in the temple when Jesus came in and rearranged the furniture and drove a few guys out with some whips and some cords? Or did he at least hear about that? And if he did, what would he have thought to himself? Saul of Tarsus would have said, who does this guy think he is riding into this city at this holy day, having the crowd shout praises of, uh, hosannas of praise to him and worship him, and then have the audacity to come into the temple and rearrange the furniture and upset the whole thing? Who does this guy think he is, God? That's what he would have thought in his mind. I think Saul of Tarsus was on the Sanhedrin. He knew the members of the Sanhedrin. And I think he was in Jerusalem when Jesus was killed, executed, when he rose again, and on the day of Pentecost. And if that is true, then it means that Saul of Tarsus was standing in the Sanhedrin, listening to Peter say, there is no other name given among men under heaven whereby you must be saved. He was there to see Peter and John and the rest of the apostles be flogged for the name of Christ and to leave the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for Jesus' sake. It means he would have been there to hear Peter say, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you crucified by hanging Him on a cross and has exalted Him to be Prince and Savior and to grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Saul would have heard all of that. And as the church was growing and things, people were being added, he finally came to the conclusion, it's not enough to beat them. It's not enough to imprison them. We have to get to the point where we're willing to kill them if our nation and our culture and our faith are going to survive. And so he did so. Paul says, I was there, I was casting my pebble to condemn men or to excuse men. I think that indicates he was on the Sanhedrin. Now I've heard people say, and listen, I've heard people say, Paul could have never been on the Sanhedrin because two things were one thing was required to be on the Sanhedrin that you be married, and as far as we know, Paul was never married. You hear that? People say he couldn't have been on the Sanhedrin because you had to be married to be on the Sanhedrin, and as far as we know, Paul was never married. There's only two problems with that. First of all, we don't know that Paul was never married. It may be that he had been married, and when he sometime after his salvation, or even sometime before his salvation, that he had been widowed and that he had never married. It may be that the Apostle Paul had been married and that when he got saved and became an apostle and became a Christian that his wife left him because she felt he had left the faith. We do know that by Acts 13 he was not married. He did not have a believing spouse with him. He, he was not, did not have a wife. My suspicion is that Paul is never married. But here's the second problem. Nowhere in anything that I've ever read, in Edersheim, encyclopedias, dictionaries, anything I've ever read on the Sanhedrin, have I ever found that you had to be married to be on the Sanhedrin. I've heard people say this, but I've never read that from any historical source, that you had to be married to be on the Sanhedrin. One commentator said there was one requirement for being on the Sanhedrin, rabbinical learning. In other words, you had to have your educational pedigree in place. You had to be a rabbi. You had to be schooled. You had to be an intellect. You had to be educated. You had to know your Old Testament. You had to know your culture. You had to know Judaism. You had to be one of the brightest minds in the land. Now listen, if that's the only requirement for being on the Sanhedrin, do you think the Apostle Paul qualified? <laughs> yeah, hands down. He qualified. Well, here's what he says. I cast my pebble in favor of killing people. And he actually did that with somebody. And then he walked out to the execution pit and he held the coats while they executed Stephen. And he sat there and he listened to all of Stephen's message too. And he listened to Stephen say, you're just as hard-hearted and just as wicked as your fathers. 
because now the Christ is coming and you've rejected God again. And Saul heard all of that. He was in Jerusalem. I think he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Paul says not only that he was casting people into prisons, he was also casting his vote to execute people as an active member of the Sanhedrin, that ruling body in Jerusalem. Look at the rest of his methods that he employed. Verse 11, As I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. I punished them often, Paul said. Anywhere that the authority of the chief priest and Annas and Caiaphas and the high priest and the Sanhedrin was recognized, Paul went there and he went into their synagogues and he rounded up Christians and he punished them and he tried to force them to blaspheme. I don't know what that looks like, but I know what he was trying to do. He was trying to get them to repent, to recant, to take away their profession of faith in Christ and to convert back to Old Testament Judaism. He was trying to get them to blaspheme. Now here's the irony of it. Who was the real blasphemer? Saul of Tarsus was. And he calls himself that in 1 Timothy 3. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. And here he was trying to get other people who actually were honoring God to blaspheme. He was blasphemed thinking he was honoring God. And then after the Lord changed his heart, he suddenly realized it's not they who are apostates. It's not they who are blasphemers. I was the blasphemer. It was my heart that was wrong. I saw it wrong. And he repented. Those were his methods. Prison, casting his vote to see them executed, rounding them up in the synagogues, and trying to get them to blaspheme. Last thing I want you to notice is his madness. His madness. Look at verse 11. I punished them often in synagogues and tried to force them to blaspheme, being furiously enraged. Look at those words. Furiously enraged at them. I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. We know of one foreign city that he tried to go to. Remember that one? Damascus. That's where he got saved. That's the only one Luke mentions, but here Paul mentions there were other cities. There were other people, by the way, whom he voted to put to death other than Stephen. Stephen is the only one that's mentioned. The first one mentioned. But there are certainly others, and there are other cities that Paul was going to. And Damascus happened to be on the list. And he had his... his Letter of, of recognition in his letter of authority from the chief priests. And Paul says, I was, on Dama- I was on my way to Damascus. Probably from some other city. Because Paul said he was taking this intercity persecution to foreign cities. He was so furiously enraged, so intent was he on killing Christians, wiping out the Christian faith, that I am convinced that had Jesus Christ of Nazareth not appeared to Saul of Tarsus, he would have taken his persecution all the way to Rome if necessary. Any place Christians were, he wanted to be there. And then he was going to make sure that they did one of two things. They either recanted or they were killed. Saul of Tarsus, a terrorist, in our modern parlance, that's what we'd call people like that. This happens in foreign countries now all the time. People go from church to church, house to house, rounding up Christians, taking them out and killing them. It happens in Muslim countries, in Africa, in Asia. This goes on all the time. Churches are burned, houses are burned, families are destroyed, people are killed, gassed, butchered, hacked up. All the time this goes on. Saul, in the land of Israel, was the guy who spearheaded all of that. Galatians 1.13, he says, I, I exceeded beyond all of my contemporaries in Judaism. I persecuted the church of God beyond measure. Paul says you can't even measure the amount that I persecuted the church. And then he says, I sought to destroy it. Now, can you imagine, having listened to what the Apostle Paul described, can you imagine the terror terror or the fear that would be struck in the heart of a Christian when they heard the name Saul of Tarsus? 
Saul's coming to town. Big headline in the Damascus Gazette. Saul is coming to town. And you think, you know, would you wonder what the Christians were thinking? The Lord said to Ananias in a vision, I want you to go to the street called Straight. I want you to find the house of Judas. I want you to go inside. There's a man in there, Saul of Tarsus. He's seen a man in a vision named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him. I want you to go there. I want you to lay hands on him. He's going to regain his sight. What did Ananias say? Great. I'm looking for an opportunity to meet Saul of Tarsus. This guy's been at the top of my to meet list for a long time. No, Ananias said, Lord, I've heard about this guy. Everybody had heard about this guy. You think Agrippa was sitting here listening to Paul and this was new details to him? It wasn't new to Agrippa. Anybody who knew anything about Saul of Tarsus knew his history and his background, and Agrippa was a practicing Jew. He had lived in the land for a long time. He knew all about him. And Ananias says, Lord, I've heard about him, how much harm he has done to your saints at Jerusalem and how he has authority from the chief priests to come here and to bind all who call on your name. He was terrified, and rightly so. You would not have, in the early church, wanted to sit down next to Saul of Tarsus and worship. In fact, three years after his conversion, when he went back to the city of Jerusalem, it says he tried to get in with the disciples. He tried to make his way into the church, find out where they're meeting, where can I join them. I want fellowship. I want communion. I want the preaching of the Word. I want to gather with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And the disciples didn't want anything to do with him. You know why? Rightly so. They thought he was coming into the church to destroy from the inside what he was not able to destroy from the outside. They thought it was a feigned conversion. He just wants to find out who we're, who we're meeting with where we're meeting, who our leaders are, so that he can round them up and kill them. And they didn't want anything to do with him. Why? Because his his fame as a persecutor and a violent aggressor and a blasphemer was all over the region. He'd been in all the foreign cities around Jerusalem, rounding up Christians, and everybody knew, Saul of Tarsus, you stay away from him. And when he comes into town, it is locked down. Everybody's quiet. Why? Because in those days... If you got baptized, you made a confession of faith in Christ, or you worshipped as a Christian, you had Saul of Tarsus' crosshairs right on your chest. And he wanted you, and he was going to make sure you did one of two things. You either recanted, or you died. Those were the two options. And one thing I want you to notice before we leave this passage, and maybe you already noticed it. Did you notice the repetition of the word I? Did you notice that in the passage? Look what Paul says. I thought to myself, I had to do hostile things. I did this in Jerusalem. I locked up the saints. I received authority from the chief priests. I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in the synagogues. I tried to force them into blasphemy. I was furiously enraged and I went to many foreign cities. I, 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 I. Why does Paul do that? That tells us something very significant about the Apostle Paul. Listen, he's not bragging about his accomplishments. The fact that he had been a persecutor and a violent aggressor was not something that brought any kind of joy or satisfaction to his heart. He is not boasting about his sin. He is not bragging about his past. He is not bragging about his being furiously enraged and mad and all of that to Agrippa. What Paul is doing is owning his sin. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't justify it. He doesn't rationalize it. He doesn't talk it away. Paul says, here is what I did. I did this. I did this. I did this. This is the type of person that I was. And he owned up to his sin, which has to happen before anybody can be converted. You have to come to the point where you own your sin. And you own up to it. And you take possession of it. And you say, I'm guilty of this. This is what I have done. This is what it has done to God against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned and done what is wicked in your sight. That's what David said. You have to come to that point. Paul was at that point, And he had been at that point. And there were other people in the land of Israel who had participated with him in all of his persecuting endeavors. There were the chief priests and the temple guard and those who gave him authority and all of the people who had helped him 
spearhead this persecution of the Christian church. And Paul doesn't push any of the blame off on them. He says, it all rests on me. And listen, the most natural thing for you and I to do is to deny our sin, to rationalize our sin, and to excuse our sin. And the Apostle Paul says you cannot do that. And Scripture says you cannot do that. If you regard iniquity in your heart, God will not hear you. Don't ever do that. And listen, don't ever teach your children to do that. Parents, grandparents, listen to this. There is the tendency that we have to rationalize away our children's sin and to say, oh, it's just boys will be boys. That's just the age they're going through. He fell in with the wrong crowd. He did the wrong thing. He did his best. He was trying his best. He, it's that darn girlfriend that he has that's got him all in all that trouble and she's leading him down the road or it's his, her boyfriend that she has who's a bad influence on her. Friends are bad. It's the neighbors. It's this. It's that. It's the other thing. No, it's him. Just right, bring it right down to them. It's them. Make them own their sin. They've done this. Make them fess up to it and own it. Because you can't be converted without that. Now, the Apostle Paul has gone through all of this for a grip, all of his biographical information, his Judaism, his raising in Jerusalem, his education, his standing as a Pharisee, his activity in persecuting the church. And by this time, Agrippa would be saying, being so Jewish, being such a Pharisee, being so zealous in persecuting Christians, what in the world would make you change? Paul says, I'm glad you asked. That's what he goes into next. And what he wants to show Agrippa is just how unlikely of a candidate he was for conversion. If you looked out across the landscape of Judaism, if you looked at every individual in the Roman Empire, and you said, pick for me the most unlikely candidate for conversion, you would have said, Solitarsus. Hands down, most unlikely guy. Well, let's pray for Saul. <laughs> Waste my breath praying for that guy. Are you kidding me? It's the most unlikely candidate for conversion there ever was. I'm not going to waste my breath praying for Saul of Tarsus. Well, let's reach out to him. Send him a card, an encouragement card, something to sort of reach out, try and get him to come to faith in Christ. He would have said, you're nuts. The most unlikely guy in all of the world to be converted was Saul of Tarsus. Well, what converted him? That's what's next in the text. Paul says, while I was doing this, you had to understand how far he had come down before you can realize how, how, how great and grand was the grace of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for salvation that reached down and touched us. Help us to never forget the pit from which we come, the depth of our sin, our wickedness, and our depravity. Help us to remember how far it is that we had fallen before you came down and rescued us and brought us to faith in Christ. Thank you for a sanctifying grace, a good grace, a powerful grace that was able to overcome our resistance to your will and a resistance to your word. Thank you that you changed our hearts and gave us a new nature and made us, caused us to be born again in Jesus Christ unto a living hope. We thank you for that salvation and thank you for Paul who is an encouragement to us to remember that never is there anybody who we would say is totally beyond the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ. Thank you that your grace is so abundant that it covers even us. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.